0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. James Renahan about the first London Confession of Faith. We cover topics like what is the historical context of the confession? What are the primary sources for it? How does this confession overlap with the second London Confession? And other topics like that. Uh, as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us at contact at the Now, the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, uh, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly about issues, particularly those related to theology. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew.
0: And today we have the distinct pleasure to introduce to you Dr. James uh, Renahan, We're going to be talking about his new commentary on the first London Confession of Faith and its relation to the second London Confession of Faith and some of the particularities that go on in that. I'm really looking forward to learning from him, especially I've got some own questions that I think I've seen where some people want to affirm the first, but not the second for various reasons. So I think it'll be a lot of fun to kind of learn on this topic. So before we get into all of that material, Dr. Renahan, why don't you give us, I don't know, 30 to 60 seconds introduction, just who you are, what you do, uh, where you live, do you have a family, uh, those kind of things.
2: Sure. Uh, first, I want to say thank you to both of you for inviting me to be on. It's nice to meet you. I don't think we've ever met in person before, uh, but I really appreciate it. Um I am president of IRBS Theological Seminary. We've been here in Mansfield, Texas for two years. Prior to that, I was, for 20 years, uh, the dean of the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies at Westminster Seminary in Escondido, California. Um, My wife and I have been married for 42 years. We have five adult children and 11 grandchildren uh two of my sons are pastors i think you've actually had sam on uh yeah sam's been camp. on yeah so uh the name at least is familiar to some of your listeners um but uh you know we're seeking to uh bring up train up ministers for the gospel for service to christ and uh uh this uh covid-19 stay at home order has given me time to do some work on uh, some writing projects that I've wanted to get at for a long time. All my uh, travel has been canceled, so I've been home, and that's been a good thing because I've been able to get a lot done. And that's, that's, awesome. why, that's why we're at where we are this morning, to talk about these things.
0: That's good stuff.
1: I guess we can just uh, jump right in then on one of your writing projects, and that's your, your commentary on the, the First London Confession. So tell us a little bit about why you um, decided to write this commentary.
2: Yeah, well, if you don't mind, I just want to back up a little bit. Um, I I have taught a course uh, called uh, Baptist Symbolics for about 20 years. And it has focused on the Second London Confession with um, about three hours given to lecture on the First London. And uh, a lot of people, my students or or, uh, visitors who've come in to audit the class have said, you need to turn these lecture notes into a book. And so that's been in the works for 20 years, nearly. Um, As I grew in my knowledge of the Confession and uh, continued to think about it and its relationship to First London, it it seemed to me that it was more important to start with the First London Confession, um, work through that, produce some material, and then get to the Second London Confession. And so I started um, maybe about uh, two or three years ago to write this book. And I, uh, at one of the ETS meetings, uh, I had the opportunity of doing a session that, that dealt with some of the material. But just because I've been so busy, especially moving to Texas, it, uh, it took away time from that project. But I, I determined that I needed to do it. And so uh, with the stay-at-home orders, it's given me the opportunity, so it's it's really a preliminary uh, volume. In fact, uh, Founders Press, who will be publishing it, asked me to do a two-volume set, and so this is volume one. the The set will be called Baptist Symbolics, and then this is the the title for volume one is "For the Vindication of the Truth: uh, colon, A Brief Exposition of the First London Confession." The the title. That phrase, For the Vindication of the Truth, comes from one of the title pages of one of the editions. The, the, the second volume will also be based upon uh, some introductory material. Its its title, I mean, will be based on that. So this is volume one of what is projected to be a two-volume set. Um, and I, because I am more and more convinced of the intimate relationship between the two confessions, I, I think it was quite appropriate and important to deal with uh, First London at the beginning and then move on into second London.
0: Awesome. So maybe a question for those who may not know, what does Baptist symbolics mean? Oh, good w- why I use that term?
2: Yeah, that that's a really good question. Uh, well, of course, most people will understand what Baptist means. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're all, we're committed to the practice of believers, baptism by immersion, uh, a, a confession of faith in Christ after profession. Um, but symbolics is an old uh, term that's been used in the history of the church to speak of creeds or confessions. They symbolize the faith. They summarize it or symbolize it and give to us um, a, um, a, a means by which we can, in brief compass, understand what Christians have believed throughout the ages. So Baptist symbolics is uh, a title that we gave to the Course to say we're dealing primarily with Confessions of faith, symbols of the faith, as they've been understood by Baptists.
0: Awesome, that's helpful. I I think I, you know, I've seen that terminology, and I'm like, honestly, I've never been trained at a a, like, I guess, Reformed confessional institution, except I guess Southern technically is. We just never use that terminology. So I'm sitting there thinking, what does that mean? And I imagine if if I don't know, I I imagine a good amount of our listeners might know. It's a really good question.
2: Yeah, it really is.
0: Anyway, so for the First London Confession, maybe you can sketch a little bit of the historical context of it and some of the maybe primary sources that went into creating this confession. I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with the Second London and its primary sources of Westminster and Savoy. But the First London may be a little bit more, I guess, fuzzy or murky. So maybe walk us through that.
2: Okay, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really important question, but it may take me a few minutes to to walk through everything. Okay, um, the, the Baptists in England begin to appear in the early 17th century, but the earliest grouping of them were Arminian. Um, in the 1630s, uh, a, with a completely separate origination, there were a group of churches through a variety of circumstances or, or a group of men who came to the conviction of Believer's Baptism, out of the context of Puritanism uh, and its Calvinistic wing. And uh, those men uh, coalesced their convictions, uh, began to form churches around 1638. And by the time you get to uh, the early 1640s, there are a cluster of them in London, uh, they're committed to a Calvinistic theology. They have all come out of a very strongly Puritan and often separatist uh, or semi-separatist kind of background, and they're but they're they're in a, a volatile political environment where um, the enemies, uh, their their enemies, are trying to paint with a broad brush and view them as actually enemies of the state and of the church. As seditious, as traitors, as treasonous, as fomenters of rebellion and evil, and uh, th- they faced the possibility of uh, what was called the rude mob—that is, individuals who uh, they weren't—they weren't really Christians. They just like to cause trouble. They could be incited by others, though, and so they were—they were faced with a, a really uh, explosive situation. Likewise. In late 1644, uh, I think it was in September, um, the Westminster Assembly had been meeting for over a year, and the Westminster Assembly was aware of the presence of these churches. And so they, uh, members of the Westminster Assembly in Parliament, demanded of these churches that they give some kind of account of their faith and practice. Um, This this has been detailed in really brilliant uh, ways by uh, a friend of mine named Matt Bingham, Matthew Bingham. Uh, He has several articles in uh, academic journals, but also his book that was published last year called Orthodox Radicals, which is really a first rate treatment. It's beautifully written. It's thoroughly researched. It's very helpful. Uh, Matt has worked through this and he, he Gives you the information from the Westminster Assembly, and shows that the the first edition of the First London Confession of Faith appeared approximately five or six weeks after this demand that came from the Westminster Assembly to give a, a theological account of who you are, and so it, it its first edition appears as a response to the demand that comes from Parliament and the Westminster Assembly. Then. Um, It was examined by quite a number of individuals. Um, One of the the things that I do in the book is work through all of the uh, literary references to the Confession and its examiners and objectors. They're sort of the foil that I use to explain what what the paragraphs, the articles of the Confession are about. So they, uh, about 12, 14, 15 months later in 1646... In response to some of the critiques that they received, they revised uh, their confession of faith. So there's a 1646 edition, the second edition revised and enlarged, the title page says. Well, things continued to develop over the next few years. Uh, let Let me just say this. In 1644, when the first edition comes out, you have a civil war raging between Parliament and the king. And it's not clear in 1644 who will win. Um, will, will the king prevail? Will parliament prevail? Well, by the time that 1646 comes, it's clear that parliament will be the victors. And so some of the changes that are made in the 1646 edition are in response to the changing political circumstances. Now, of course, as as the political situation in England develops in 1649, January 1649, the king is executed. He'd been tried, uh, convicted as a treasonous man, executed, and now England is in the process of trying to develop a new political circumstance. Well, these same churches again revise the confession in 1651, and again in response to the changing political circumstances around them. Now, oftentimes what you find, and and one of the things that I do in the book is I set up side-by-side each of the three versions, so that you can see the changes. 1646 is extensive changes to 1644. 1651 is generally minor changes. So you, you don't always have three columns. Sometimes you only have two. But you can see a refining of doctrine and practice through the various confessions. So that 1651 is probably the most mature of the three versions of them. But but it has some surprises in it as well. So that's that's sort of what's going on. They're they're very much aware of the religious, theological, political circumstances that are around them. They want to protect themselves from the, the dangers that they face. They want to align themselves as closely as they can with the broader Puritan movement. Uh, and so they, they attempt to do that. Um, the sources that they use are pretty interesting. The most important is a confession from 1596, probably written by the exiled Puritan Henry Ainsworth, who was considered to be one of the great Hebraists of his day. Uh, Even within the Church of England, they recognized that Ainsworth probably exceeded everyone else. And his study in rabbinical literature and in Hebrew uh, made him a recognized scholar in the Old Testament. Well, while his church was in exile in the Netherlands, they published a confession of faith and roughly 50% of the material from uh, First London is drawn from that 1596 true confession. Then the second source, uh, which is also significant, is from the well-known Puritan William Ames. Of course, Ames was another exile. He had to go to the Netherlands and to northern Germany and spent, uh, we, we know him, by reputation, from the work that he did when he was on the continent. He was a secretary at the Senate of Dort, but he was, uh, to use a modern idiom, he was a legend in, in England and highly regarded by everyone who was of Calvinistic or Reformed views. And uh, Ames published, of course, first in Latin, a medulla, but then translated into English, The Marrow of Sacred Divinity. And uh, when this was published in English, it became very important for these seven churches. And they used a lot of material out of Ames's Marrow of Sacred Divinity uh, directly into their confession of faith. Now, I've read somewhere, I think I saw it on the Internet, someone someone from the other side of the baptism camp, okay, if I can put it (laughs) that way, said, that's, that was plagiarism. These Baptists, they just plagiarized people. Well, I mean, that was the common practice in that day. So they don't, they don't um, footnote uh, the sources. And you, know, you don't know that this is coming from Ames. But when you look at Ames's Marrow of Sacred Divinity in its 1630s English version, there, there's a modern version, but the, the earlier one is better. You can see that they just lifted the material right out of there. So Ames becomes very important in the background of the interpretation of First London. Then there are a couple of other minor sources. Uh, There was a document from 1603 that was also from the circle of Henry Ainsworth's church that identified some of the reasons that they were dissenters from the Church of England. Some of that material is found in there. Um, I've argued that there's a couple of other uh, sources perhaps along the way. Uh, But they're, they're, they're drawing on this material. We can certainly say, At least two-thirds of the statements that are in that confession are uh, drawn from other sources and pulled together to make this confession of faith. Uh, It's a good one. Um, It it is really interesting to look at it in its three iterations and notice the changes, the revisions, the, the things that are dropped out, the things that are added, the way that the political circumstances change and what they say or what they don't say along the way. Um, very interesting stuff. I, I hope that that answers your question.
0: Yeah, no, it
1: definitely does. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. We actually, you mentioned um, Matthew Bingham. We, we've had him on the oh, right. podcast, and and that was one of the things that he stressed is, you know, these these confessions, they don't just kind of drop out of the sky, you know, like right. you have to really try to understand the historical context. So I think mm-hmm. tying, you know, these other names and other confessions to it and what's going on politically is is really helpful. Um, so I maybe want to get into now the relationship between the first and the second and, um, you know, how much overlap there is and if there is any significant, um, theological shift from the first and second. So I know this is probably a, a really big question. So, I mean, you take as long as you need to dive into, um, what, what are those differences? If you don't think there are any differences, maybe, um, explain, uh, why you believe that.
2: Okay. Um, well, that, that is a question that appears fairly regularly, and it has to be addressed, and I try to address it in the book. I, I have, let, me, let me just say this before I get into that. Um, I, I don't interact uh, at all in the book with some of the modern, uh, this um, debate that goes back and forth, is there a difference between the two? Uh, it, it gets mentioned a couple of times. There may be a paragraph or two here and there that are related to it, but that wasn't the focus of what I was doing. I wanted to deal with this confession in its context and ask the question, what was its purpose? Um, How how was it understood, not simply by the churches that published it, but how was it understood by the opponents that they were trying to reach? What what would they hear and what would they think as they were reading this confession of faith? And it is interesting to note that uh, even the strongest critics and objectors to the confession acknowledge its orthodoxy. They'll they'll often uh, make snide remarks as if uh, this doesn't really tell you what they they actually believe. It's a smokescreen. In fact, (laughs) I think it's Daniel Featley who says uh, uh, a a little bit of rat's bane is covered over by a lot of sugar. And his point, of course, is if you want to catch the rats, you don't just put out the poison. You have to bring in something to attract. So So these young Baptistic congregationalists, to use Matt Bingham's term, um, are are hiding what they really believe behind a, a smokescreen of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, so so having said that, um, the, the, there's only a period between 1651, the, the last uh, version of first London and f- 1677, which is the first version of second London, there's only a 26 year time gap, okay? The the same churches um, adopted that Confession of Faith, both confessions. Uh, Now, there were changes between those churches. A couple of them uh, died died out, were no longer present. There was a merger. Um, But the remnants of the original seven churches subscribed to the Second London Confession. Several of the men who put out the First London Confession Uh, There's only two names that are present on all three editions. It's uh, William Kiffin and John Spilsbury. But they also, uh, uh, Kiffin uh, is present in the adoption of the Second London. Hansard Knowles, who is in the 1646 Confession and 1651, is a subscriber to the Second London. So you have several of the same men. Uh, Henry 40 is another one who uh, appears in 1651 and in 1677. Same churches, same men. You even have some uh, father-son duos, uh, Benjamin Cox and Nehemiah Cox, Edward Harrison, Thomas Harrison. Um, So you have have a certain level of continuity there. Secondly, in the preface, the, the letter to the judicious and impartial reader of the Second London, they make the assertion very plainly that the doctrine uh, the doctrines of the two confessions are the same. Now, one of my complaints about the way that we treat confessions, and this is this is a broad statement, and it's intended to be uh, applied broadly, is that oftentimes when we read them, we read just the document itself, and we ignore the uh, surrounding material. And primarily what I'm thinking of here is the letters of introduction at the beginning. And if there is an appendix, the appendix that's put at the end, um, it, it's it's easy to come to a document, and, you know, and, I, I mean, we, we all do it anyways when we read books, don't we? Somebody once told me a long time ago, if you write a book and you want to say something important, don't put it in the preface, put it in chapter one, <laughs> because everybody skips the preface, okay? So in my book, chapter one is actually the introduction, but I call it chapter one because I want people to read it. But that's that's the way that modern readers tend to be. We want to get to the meat of it, and so we skip over what comes before. I think that that's a real mistake in, in this case because we need to, and it's a mistake when confessions are published to drop that material out, uh, to give a modern introduction, let's say, and then you turn the page and you're at Article 1 of 1646. But you've just missed everything that they have said to give a context to their confession of faith. So um, when the Second London Confession argues that its theology is the same as the first, one has to ask the question, how how truthful is that? Um, Because in 1677, there are still people alive who know both confessions, there are same churches, even lay people in those churches would still be available uh, to, to give testimony. And the documentary evidence is available to anyone who wants to read them. Is there any evidence anywhere, um, either in the surrounding theological literature or among the people who adopted the confession, that there are, there's are there been a movement from one system of theology to another? No, there isn't. There is some internal evidence in the three editions of 1644 that they're adapting to political circumstances around them so that the, the articles on the civil magistrate um, reflect the differences between a civil war that's undecided, a civil war that's been triumph, the triumph is on the side of the parliament, and an attempt to find a new political system when there is no king. That's that's present in uh, the three editions of First London. But when you come to theological matters, there are no differences between them. Um, and so I, I think that that's a really naive approach to reading the confessions is just to say, Yeah, there there clearly is a difference. Where's the evidence besides you asserting that? Can can you show me any reason that I should consent to that statement? And I've yet to see any evidence from anyone that that's the case.
0: So maybe this will be somewhat of a concrete example. It seems like in my experience, I've seen a lot of people who will say, I want to affirm the first, but not the second particularly because of the way the second defines the Sabbath and the threefold division of the law. So is there, I mean, I guess to their point, what is the difference between the two on that? Is just the first one, just it's not there or it's, it's not clear. And it becomes more clear in the second where it's the same theology there. Um, Cause I've even seen, I think new covenant theology guys want to say I'm good with the first because it doesn't explain in a more robust sense, the nature of the covenants and everything, as does the second. So maybe you can talk to that.
2: Yeah, well, um, Jordan, you're you're uh, doing a PhD in philosophy, so you understand something about postmodernism and reader response criticism and all the rest. And I would argue that that approach to uh, ancient documents is a reflection of the per- permeating influence of postmodern types of Approaches to reading ancient documents—you read them in the light of what you know or what you want to see in them, rather than what's actually there. And that—that's why my my goal has been not so much to ask the question, "What does this confession mean today?" It's rather, "What did it mean to the the men who published it, the churches who published it, and how was it received in the broader community? What what did they see in it?" So I think that. it's a naive approach to the confession of faith to say, um, because something is not explicitly stated, therefore it's not part of their theology. Now, yeah. there, there's all kinds of things that um, that I, I need to say in response to that question. So forgive me if I uh, take a little bit of time here. We have to be careful uh, not to be naive by saying, the threefold division of the law, or even a statement about the obligation of the Sabbath is absent. Therefore, these churches didn't believe or practice those things. Um, that's to decontextualize this, this document. Now, if somebody wants to come along and say, I like the First London because it doesn't address those things, though I know that those men held to the threefold division of the law and the Sabbath, that's honest. Okay, that, That's saying... I I hold this confession not in the way that the original authors held it. I hold it in my own way in the 21st century. I I, I have much less problem with that than those who say, see, they believed something different. And so that's why I'm adopting this confession. Uh, I think that the the latter, that that common um, objection that you have read on the Internet, and I've seen it a few times as well, is uh, guilty of what's sometimes is called the word concept fallacy. And that, of course, is if the term is not specifically used, then the concept is not there. But that's problematic, isn't it? Because uh, there are many examples that come to mind. Um, the word Trinity. An objection that's been used against uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is that it's not found in the New Testament. And you'll even find scholars, New Testament scholars, who will say, Paul wouldn't have recognized the doctrine of the Trinity as it was formulated in the 4th and 5th centuries. And I say, baloney. Second um, Corinthians 13, 14 is a Trinitarian statement. Uh, the Great Commission text on baptism is a Trinitarian statement. They may not have used the word Trinity, but the concept is clearly there in the Scriptures. And to argue otherwise is to denude the Christian faith of one of its most important and fundamental doctrines. Now, um, when you look closely at the First London Confession of Faith, you'll find that while they don't use the language of the threefold division of the law, certainly the concepts are present. So that the idea of an ongoing or continuing moral law is certainly present, in the thinking of these men, and it's present in the text of the confession. When when you come, for example, to the the section on the the civil magistrate and the obligations that Christians have to submit to those who are in rightful political authority over them, the fifth commandment looms in the background very clearly in that case. Um, Likewise, when you come to baptism and the defense of baptism that was used by these uh, young Baptists, um, the the defense is based upon a progression from the ceremonial law of the Old Testament to a new ceremonial law of the New Testament. They don't deny the continuity of law. What they deny is that there was a ceremonial law that applied uh, in circumcision and all of the attending circumstances around circumcision Those were done away with in the gospel, but now there's a new set of ceremonial laws, and those ceremonial laws are primarily focused on baptism and the Lord's table. They don't mention imputation. Does that mean that they denied the fact that uh, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us in justification? They deny—actually, here's a really interesting one. The 1644 Confession in Article 21 has a clear statement. Let me read it to you. I've got it on my screen. Salvation is only and alone to be had through the believing in his name. Okay, an explicit statement that explicit faith in Christ is required. That statement is omitted in 1646. Now, that's an interesting question. Why did they omit that statement? Because there were people who denied that explicit faith in Christ was necessary for salvation. Um, Many of the general Baptists certainly denied that some of the particular Baptists ended up going in that direction and denying it. And you even have someone as prominent as Richard Baxter, who denied it. Now, does that mean that the 1646 Confession actually removes the idea that explicit faith in Christ is necessary for salvation? You see how problematic it becomes when you look at this document, you say, because something isn't stated, then it must not hold that view. Okay, well, then imputation, the Lord's Supper... Uh, explicit faith in Christ are just examples. Let me give you another uh, example of this and another way to approach it that I think uh, is helpful. It's a document. uh, One of the reasons that I wanted to get it done now as well, I should have said this earlier is next year, 2021 will be the 375th anniversary of the 1646 edition. So, you know, a perfect year to, uh, to have a book published, to sort of celebrate, uh, Uh, something important. All right. Well, um, um, where was I going with that? Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Language has changed in the, the course of time between that era and and this era. Words get a different sense. The semantic range will expand or contract or words will drop out of our language. I, I had a, a friend, I'm helping some some folks in another country in another language uh, work on a translation of the second London. And he was asking me the other day about the word vouchsafe, uh, which is in the chapter 12 on adoption. Vouchsafe. Well, when was the last time you used vouchsafe? Uh, you know, apart from reading the confession, you probably uh. have never used it in your life, nor have I. So I, you know, I had to help him understand what it means. And of course, I don't speak his language. He gave me several options. What do you think of this translation? That, that's that's an example. Now, here's a modern one: Bacon. Okay. Bacon. Now, what do you think of when you think of bacon? I had some this morning for breakfast with my egg. Okay. Brown thing, long strips. Good. Have you ever been to England? Okay. You, you go to England, you get off the plane, you're hungry, you go order breakfast and you get bacon and eggs. And suddenly what appears on your plate is not what you expected. Because for them, bacon is not what bacon is to us, but it's, it's contemporary. It, it could happen today. Because what we call bacon is more, what theirs is more like what we would call Canadian bacon, although it's not exactly the same. And they call ours streaky bacon. But you use the word bacon, you assume you get one thing on your plate, you get something else. So you have to be very, very careful when you're working, even in contemporary English, with certain words, never mind a document that's nearly 400 years old. So in in going back to that document, it's very naive to say this Doctrine isn't there. You need to go back to it and say, how was language used? How was it understood by its contemporaries? What was the purpose? And so, having said all of that, I come back to: it simply isn't true that either they denied the the the, the keeping of the Sabbath or that they denied any kind of distinctions between the moral law and other forms of law that are found in the Bible. And in In the article on sanctification, I think it's Article 29 in in my book, I've got several examples from these men where they explicitly state that we must receive the moral law and continue to keep the moral law as it comes to us through Jesus Christ. So even even in their own surrounding documents, they very clearly make this distinction between moral law and ceremonial law. it It troubles me that people naively I'll, I'll, let's put the best construction on it and say it's not malicious. I hope it's not malicious, but it's naive to make that kind of statement, and it simply will not hold up to careful examination,
0: yeah, I think uh, one of the pastors who's who was telling me that he he was concerned if I would be willing to go on a hike with them on a Sunday because of what the second London said about the Sabbath, so I think that was the context as he's thinking. I guess, and maybe you can speak to this, how restrictive is the Second London or First London's view of the Sabbath? Am I allowed to go take a hike on the Sabbath uh, as a form of, I guess, recreation? Or does that term mean something different than that?
2: Yeah, the, well, in Second London, it actually uses the, the phrase worldly recreations. And worldly there, of course, doesn't mean sinful. Yeah. Uh, it, but it's, it's referring it's in, in its context, it comes out of, um, uh, a, a publication that came from King James the first called the book of sports in which the King was seeking to, um, effectively end Sabbath observers at the end of public worship, and then to encourage people to be involved in a variety of things, um, that they would practice maypole dancing, um, things purposely chosen in the culture to give uh, angst, um, heartburn to the Puritans around them. And so you you have to read that statement in that context. Um, I don't know specifically how it would apply to the question of taking a hike today. I I don't have an answer for you. When people ask me that question, well, what, what can we do on the Sabbath? I say, if you do all the things that you should do, you don't have to worry too much about other time. You know, if you're worshiping God, if you're resting, if you're doing works of necessity and charity, um, you you don't have to think too much about uh, whether or not uh, you can play football. Yeah. Hmm.
0: That makes sense.
1: So you've, you've spent, you know, a lot of your uh, adult life studying this, this period of history, you know, the 17th century Baptist. So, I'm really interested to find out if there's if there's anything that when you were studying for 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 this commentary and when you were comparing the different editions of the first London Confession and the first to the second, is there anything that you ran across and you were really surprised by? Like you didn't expect to find um, this or that fact, or is something developed historically in a way that you know you didn't know until recently. Was there anything that really surprised you during your study?
2: Um. Well, like you said, I've been working with this for a long time, so I've been familiar with the contours um, for a long time. But I I would say that one of the the most important um, ideas in my mind that has been thoroughly confirmed as I've worked through it is the willingness of these Baptists to concede to the broader Puritan culture around them. The, the stated purpose of publishing the Confession was to demonstrate their orthodoxy. And as they were critiqued by others, um, they regularly concede the points. And so that 1644, the the revisions that are made to, to 1644 in 1646, every place that Daniel Featley critiqued them, they changed. And there was another... Um, a layman named Thomas Bakewell, who was one of the two most extensive critics of First London. He critiqued 1644. I looked very carefully at the text of 1644, Bakewell's, pardon me, Bakewell's critiques, and then the text of 1646. And in nearly every place where he critiqued them, they likewise conceded the point or, Sometimes just by altering their language, choosing a different adjective that uh, perhaps would be more amenable to Bakewell and his objections. But you you see that instead of being militant Mm -hmm. in the publication of the confession, they're actually very peaceful uh, and they're they're doing all that they can within the boundaries of their uh, theological commitments to... Make themselves fit into the the circumstances in which they live, and that, that was really refreshing to me. But to be to be honest, it wasn't surprising. Um, but to see how extensively they concede points to their opponents um, is was really fascinating.
1: Might be a lesson we could learn today on
2: on Twitter. <laughs> oh well, yeah, I'm, I'm not on Twitter, but I'm sure I'm that that <laughs> not anymore. Probably the truth.
0: So one last question I, I'm curious about. I think uh there's a good majority or a good section of our listeners anyway that love the Second London, love the first London Confession, and they want to do further study and research on, on these doctrines and these truths that are here and purveying it among, I guess, the broader church culture and, and just broader culture in general. What areas would you say are under researched and would be worthy of someone committing significant amount of time and effort to, to study and research and write on.
2: Yeah. Um, that's a good question too. Um, as I worked my way through, um, I, I sort of artificially broke the confession up into sections. It, it just flows. It's, it's for 52 or 53, depending on which edition, uh, articles, but they, they certainly do fit into topics, uh, begins with the doctrine of God. Then a couple of articles on, on scripture, Then nine through 20 is on Christ 21 through 32 is soteriology. Then you get the civil magistrate and then you have one article at the end on, on the resurrection. Um, the, the first couple of segments sections what become chapters in my book, um, are, are pretty easy to document the sources. But when you come to the section on soteriology, 21 through 32, I couldn't find any documentary sources. Now, I found lots of evidence that what they are saying reflects the soteriological views more broadly in in Puritanism. So there's nothing unique and unusual in their soteriology. But I think uh, a, a study of the sources, the potential sources I looked extensively, and I couldn't find anything. And maybe there isn't any. But if there isn't, then why why were things put together the way that they were? Now, to be honest with you, I think in that section it meanders, it, it and and it doesn't it doesn't reflect uh, a, a careful historical, thoughtful progression through soteriological subjects, and that may be because. The 1644 edition was originally written only by laymen. So far as I know, none of them were had been trained as ministers in the Church of England. So it's a very good statement from educated laymen. But in some places, I think it reflects the fact that you have laity who are putting it together. Now, when you come to 1646, uh, you get the addition of some university graduates, but they don't they don't reorder the articles. They they use what's there. So I think that, that the background for that section would be really interesting. Um, another one that I think deserves a lot more study is um, the section on the civil magistrate and the church and state. And especially the changes that come. It's, it's really interesting, uh, as I note in the book, how the, the Baptists are apolitical largely. Although some, some of them do get involved in, in some wonky political ideas in the 1650s, the Fifth Monarchy movement, which was a, a, a belief that uh, Christ would soon return and, and institute the Fifth Monarchy. It's a sort of millennialism. Uh, and there was actually a rebellion uh, under a man named Thomas Venner, who was not a Baptist, uh, that was intending to try to bring in the, the return of Christ by, by the use of arms. Uh, But they were largely apolitical. And so you see how their relationship to Parliament in 1644, because they're in London, which is dominated by Parliament, the king has fled, he's in Oxford, how their relationship to Parliament, and then the king, and then the Cromwellian regime, which in 1651 still has not and never really did settle on a form of government. I think it'd be very interesting to, to trace that through. And there is some some uh, broader literature, uh, not much, but broader literature from the Baptists, Edward Harrison, for example, that deals with the question. Now, I, I have a friend, a pastor in Florida, who is working on this right now. And uh, I actually consulted him as I was working through it, because I think he knows more about it, certainly, than I do. And he was very, very, very helpful to me. But I think that's another area of um, study that that would be very interesting, the political views and and how that all works.
0: Well, when you write that, or whoever writes that, send it to me, I want to read it. <laughs> Brandon, do you have any other questions before we wrap up? I don't. That was enjoyable, though. I learned a lot. Yeah, thanks a ton, Dr. Renahan, for uh, walking us through this. So as a reminder, you've got a book coming out. When When is it set to come out? Is there a tentative date?
2: I had an email from the publisher yesterday saying, we'll get back to you soon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, whenever it comes out, we will make sure to publi- publicize it wherever we can. And we encourage you to go get yourself a copy of it and uh, use it for your own personal edification or use it for your local church or use it for some more research capacities in uh, broadening and deepening the study of Reformed Baptist thought. So we, we definitely encourage that as well as the rest of your work the rest of your work that I know you've got other, uh, pieces that you've published. Um, I think what the book edification and beauty, I can't remember the
2: title of it. Yeah. Yeah. That was my PhD thesis.
0: Okay. I I know that's been helpful. I know a lot of people have referenced that with good use. So if you're not familiar with that, go check that out. It's a great resource, uh, for for Reformed Baptist thought. So again, thanks Dr. Renahan for joining us. pleasure. if, by the way, if you're not familiar with the seminary, uh, what's their website? So they can go check it out.
2: irbsseminary.org. Two S's in the middle. irbsseminary.org.
0: Perfect. And you guys, you have both residential and distance programs, right?
2: Um, well, we're primarily residential, but COVID nineteen has turned us into a, a distance institution, <laughs> at least at present. Uh, we'll see how what happens with that in in the long run. But we we actually do have a certificate program that's uh, set up for pastors that is primarily distance oriented that will continue to be uh Got it. five five of the six classes are all uh can be done uh, from a distance
0: awesome well so basically what i, I want to say is for those who are a thinking about seminary or b maybe you want further education through something like that certificate program uh maybe that's something you'll check out so go go online go to their website go look see what they have to offer Um, I I think that would probably really benefit you and would be a good resource or or a good home for you for your seminary education in the future. Anyway, uh, thanks for everybody for tuning in. Um, We uh, always enjoy you guys uh, listening and your engagement and feedback. So if you've got thoughts, you've got questions, you can send them our way. Uh, We're always willing to interact, uh, love to interact. Anyway, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet And we thank you for tuning in.